3: Zumo play. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: In the last episode, the last core episode, we discussed the nature of incense and how it factors into the mix with other fire-based technologies, both as an occasional practical measure, but also as something linked to sacred rites around the world. Either as a kind of direct offering to divine beings or spirits, or as a means of setting aside a sacred space for ritual. Uh, we've changed the atmosphere of this space with incense, and now it is an appropriate place to do something that is not mundane, that is not part of the vulgar world, that is part of the sacred world. Uh, we also discussed some specific examples of dedicated censors for incense. But we didn't touch on one of the most famous Western examples of incense use, and that's where we're going to kick off today with this episode, part two of Incense, and that's of priests swinging metal censers around on chains, wafting sacred smoke through holy spaces. We're going to be talking about the world of thuribles.
0: That's right. If you've ever watched, uh, you know, uh, maybe a service on a particular holy day from from one of the the sort of uh, the, the high church denominations, so maybe a, a Catholic service or an Eastern Orthodox service, you may have seen... Uh, A member of the clergy walking around carrying some kind of cage suspended from chains and out of that cage is wafting wisps of smoke. Uh, Now, I was reading about the history of thuribles in a book called The History of the Church in Art by Rosa Giorgi. Uh, This was a a Getty art history publication from 2008, uh, translated by Brian Phillips. And this is the entry in this book on the thurible and the incense boat. And Georgi here describes the Thurible as, quote, a cup-shaped container with a lid, controlled by four chains. It is used with a smaller container in the shape of an open boat. Both are made of precious metals. So, going back deep into the history of the pre-Christian Roman Empire, it was customary to sprinkle a room with incense. Uh, the use of incense was initially controversial in Christian rites, and I'll get into more of the reasoning behind that in uh, another paper I want to talk about in a minute. Uh, But this was especially because of its association with pagan rituals. But eventually, incense was widely adopted for church uses, especially in the 4th and 5th centuries, uh, and this would be for uses such as the veneration of the dead and the demarcation of special days of worship. Georgie writes that the thurible itself has been in use since roughly the seventh century. And it usually consists of a cup shaped container and you carry that hanging from four chains and you swing it around and the cup has a lid with holes of some kind in it. The holes are important so that air can get in and so that smoke can get out kind of like the vents on a grill. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the cup, there's usually a small container for the burning incense itself. If you look at the earliest examples, thuribles tend to be simply round or hexagonal boxes, but over time the thurible becomes more ornate. Quote, In Gothic times, it took on architectural forms to symbolize the church building itself, and from the 17th century onward, it acquired freer forms. Uh, now, I think this point uh, about the, the innovations of Gothic times is very interesting. If you look at many historical thuribles, you can often see this architectural motif, how they might resemble the dome or the spire that would be found atop the cathedral that you were carrying them around the inside of. Almost like this is a little model of our church and the smoke pouring out of it and floating up into the air is kind of like the prayer and the worship floating up out of this building to reach God.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It is. I'd never thought about it like that before, but it is. It's kind of, in many cases, you're looking at kind of like a little model of a church that's being swung around inside of a church.
0: Yeah, so, there, uh, so there's the thurible itself, but then there is also an attendant artifact called the navicula, uh, which confusingly is also the name of a genus of algae that are said to resemble boats. I think both these names come from the word for boat. Uh, and if you look up navicula as algae, they really do look like boats. It's, <laughs> it's one of the better examples of naming an organism after a human-made object uh, because it actually does look like the thing, unlike many it of did. those. Yeah, it does. Now, in the church context, the navicula is a little spice tray. It's, uh, it's a small boat-shaped container, and you keep the incense in there. And then when you're running out inside the thurible, you transfer more from the navicula to the thurible with the spoon. And uh, Georgie writes that the boat shape of the navicula became common in the 14th and 15th centuries because it symbolized the church carrying Christians to salvation, as if on a boat. And she also includes some interesting examples of artwork depicting the use of thuribles in, say, Bible stories. One is a painting by a 17th century Italian artist named uh, Filippo Abiati called Solomon Making a Sacrifice to the Idols. And, Rob, I've included a, a, a copy of this painting for you to look at here. A few interesting things to note about it. So, this is based on a passage in First Kings in the Hebrew Bible uh, talking about how, you know, despite the fact that Solomon, in some senses, was very wise and worshipped the God of Israel, it's also kind of disparaging. It's like he ran around with some foreign idols, and it says that, quote, he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places, meaning two idols of, of other gods. And the painting shows Solomon placing a thurible on a table in front of a humanoid idol that looks kind of like a classical Greek statue. And I thought this was interesting because the painting is correct in assuming that the use of incense burning uh, took place in in honoring the gods of many religions going back into ancient times and predates Christianity. But it's interesting that it shows him using a thurible with a design that would have been contemporary and used in Christian churches at the time of the painting.
1: Be kind of like if you had an illustration of Christ speaking to the masses and he's using a megaphone.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Now, leapfrogging off of this, I actually came across a paper that I found Totally fascinating. Uh, a paper about the role of aromas in the history of Christian theology, uh, mm-hmm. by specifically focusing on a figure named uh, St. Ephraim the Syrian. And this was a paper by Susan Ashbrook Harvey. I also want to give a shout out that I came across it by way of reference in a uh, JSTOR Daily article by Livia Gershon. Uh, but this this paper by Susan Ashbrook Harvey was published in the Journal of Theological Studies in 1998, and it's called St. Ephraim on the Scent of Salvation. Susan Ashbrook Harvey, the scholar who wrote this, is a professor of history and religion at Brown University. And this is all about this guy known as St. Ephraim the Syrian, or St. Ephraim. He, he lived in the 4th century from 306 to 373 in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and he was a... Popular Christian theologian, but especially prominent as a popular writer of hymns, a hymnographer. So you may in fact have heard hymns where the lyrics were composed by this guy, by St. Ephraim.
1: Ah, oh, interesting. I, know I, have to, I have to look up which ones uh, we can attribute to. him.
0: To, generally, I'm just used to seeing like John
1: Wesley's name and the Wesley names.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know I don't know how much Ephraim you're going to get in English-speaking <laughs> churches. I think that some of his hymns are still sung in some Orthodox churches. Mm. But anyway, Harvey highlights the fact that in many of his hymns, St. Ephraim uses a very interesting phrase, Ria de Hayuda, which could be translated as the fragrance of life. Now, as a bit of background, smell and fragrance had an important place in the rituals of, uh, according to Harvey, all the major religions of the ancient Mediterranean, not just the various pagan cults, but also in Judaism. And eventually in Christianity, though, it seems like the very earliest Christianity, the first few centuries of Christianity tended to avoid the use of fragrances and incense, but that changed over time and would change by Ephraim's time. Uh, Now, across all these different distinct religions, the form of many sacrificial gifts to God or to the gods was a burnt offering. You would burn something to make that a gift to the gods, and you would expect the gods to reward you in turn with with good favor, with blessings of some kind. Uh, this is the, the classic I scratch your back, you scratch my back relationship between between humans and the gods. And uh, these burnt offerings could include anything from the burnt flesh of an animal sacrifice to the burning of incense on a god's altar. And it was often, I think this is one of the strangest things, it was often explicitly said that the smell of the offering in particular was pleasing to the gods. And this is not just in pagan religions. There are loads of examples of this in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, I even alluded to one example I'm going to cite in the last part of the series. Uh, so if you look to the book of Leviticus chapter 1, the Lord is telling Moses how to perform sacrifices of livestock. It says, quote, "Then the priest shall turn the whole is referring to a bull, shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord." And this is not the only reference like this. There are tons of references throughout the Bible of smells being pleasing to God. Uh, Just a few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 2, we get a specific reference to incense. We learn that if somebody makes a grain offering instead of an animal offering, quote, When anyone presents a grain offering to the Lord, the offering shall be of choice flour. The worshiper shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons the priests. Priests, After taking from it a handful of the choice flour and oil, with all its frankincense, the priest shall turn this token portion into smoke on the altar, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. So, over and over again, we learn that it was believed that the aroma of sacrifice itself is what gives the Lord pleasure. And, uh, meanwhile in Roman pagan cults, it was common practice to make a burnt offering of some kind also could be a burnt offering of an animal or an offering of sweet smelling incense. In fact, I think incense was often considered sort of, uh, the, the baseline sacrifice you could make to the Roman gods. It was like, you know, you didn't have a whole animal. You could at least get a little chunk of incense and burn that.
1: I love the wording in this, uh, the, this, uh, this quote you read about, um, uh, turning the token portion into smoke mm. uh, kind of gets to this, uh, something we've touched on with, uh, with fire technology before about the, the transformation of one thing into the other, the sort of uh, alchemical power of, of cooking or flame or in this case, uh, burned offering.
0: Right, I think that very transformation was something that uh, that a lot of ancient theologians found kind of transfixing in a way. Like mm. they did write about it. I, I think we may get to a bit about that in in just a minute here. But uh, another thing is, it doesn't stop just with the smell of burnt offerings. Whether that's you know the kind of barbecue smell of of an animal, or whether that is the uh, the scent of incense on the altar. Also in religions of the ancient Mediterranean, fragrant holy oils were used to anoint new initiates or people specially blessed in some circumstance or maybe the sick or the dying. So the point is, smells were a deeply rooted part of religious life and the experience of the divine for multiple religions with otherwise very different beliefs. Now coming back to St. Ephraim specifically of the 4th century and his idea of the fragrance of life... Harvey notes that, uh, one thing I think is worth pointing out. We often, when we say the word fragrance that has a positive connotation to it, you know, Mm -hmm. the fragrance of life is necessarily a good smell. And as Ephraim used it, it does seem to often have positive connotations, but actually the word he's using here, Reha. Uh, does not mean only pleasant smells. It could mean the smell of anything, from a chunk of myrrh to a bouquet of flowers to a big old tub of spoiled sour cream. It would cover it all. So it might be better to think of it as smell, even though it's usually translated into English as fragrance.
1: It's tough when you're talking about English, because I I, I feel, and and this has been pointed out, uh, I've seen this pointed out by um, uh, researchers before that English language, especially in its popular usage today, is not great at describing smells and odors. Like it, uh, yeah. We, it's one of the reasons where so oftentimes you'll hear uh, kids talking about food stinking, like or, or smelling. Like I don't know, they're just they're sometimes the, the the vocabulary is lacking there, and certainly our usage of the vocabulary to properly describe smells as more than just um, you know, extremely pleasant or, or uh, extremely alarming.
0: I, yeah. A lot of smell words have too much front connotation loading. Like they're already, mm-hmm. lo- either, even if you say the word smell, which is supposed to be neutral, I think more often that's going to have a negative connotation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, fragrance makes you think of flowers or something uh, or perfume. Aroma, I think often makes me think of, I don't know, uh, onions and garlic, like cooking uh, aromatic uh, cooking ingredients.
1: Yeah, like I'm, I'm always annoyed when there is talk of quote stinky cheeses. Like, come on, we, we, we have other words that we can use. We can say that these yeah. these cheeses are pungent, perhaps, but, mm-hmm. uh, but are they stinky? I, I think you're, it's, it's just a, it's just
0: a loaded description. It's prejudging. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, so what's the deal? What What is the fragrance of life, according to St. Ephraim? Well, Harvey writes about it like this. Uh, Harvey writes, quote, "...for Ephraim, knowledge of God is something not only cognitive in origin, but also sensory, hence the arresting quality of his olfactory imagery." Bypassing the mind-body dichotomy and leaving aside the question of rationality as the basis for establishing truth, Ephraim finds in sensory experience a knowledge about God which cannot be gained any other way. So, uh, Mm. Harvey argues that for Ephraim, the fragrance of life is part of an idea that knowledge can be, quote, non-cognitive yet genuinely revelatory of divine being, truth, and action. Now, that might be like, I don't know. At first, I was like, what is she talking about? What does this mean? But uh, I, I eventually got through it she's saying that for Ephraim and not just him, there were other ancient theologians who thought this way, but for Ephraim, like you can know God is there because you can sense him with your senses. And according to Harvey, this belief has interesting relationships to the religious context of asceticism in early Syrian Christianity, which was uh, Ephraim's context. So there is a section kind of on what you might call the natural theology of Ephraim, you know, sometimes, uh, you'll hear various versions of this where people will express their religious beliefs in terms of uh, viewing the natural world. It's like, you know, observe the way the regularity of nature, look at the way uh, the tides work, look at the way plants grow, look at the way the sun comes up and comes down. That just proves that, my religious beliefs are true. Yeah, sometimes this is very clunkily uh, carried out as well. Like, you'll see a
1: a billboard by the highway, and it's like, proof of God, and it's a picture of a baby. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, it's cute (laughs) and all, but I don't know if that's proof of anything other than, like, two
0: people had a baby. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's... It's making like, it's like cutting out a step in the middle. So Mm -hmm. you look at all these things and they are indeed amazing and they can fill you with wonder and they can be inspiring and make you feel like, wow, there's, you know, there's so much more to life and to existence than I often realize when I'm just going about my tedious little everyday tasks. And that's all true. And then there's a second leap where the person says, and therefore, the fact that there is more means whatever I in particular happen to believe is what the more is. And uh, <laughs> I think that's the part that they're kind of skipping over. Truth of
1: God confirmed. But but I think one thing I, I find very interesting about, uh, about the, the, the invocation of smell here, the invocation of, uh, of voters, is that um, – you know, as we've discussed on the show before, like there's an immediacy to the way we register smell that does often feel like it comes outside of reason and it comes yeah. outside of memory. And I think that's that's very fascinating to think about in this context. Like I would say picture of a baby doesn't really tell you anything, but smell of a baby, I don't know. I don't know. That might <laughs> That might be proof of God confirmed.
0: That's more, uh, it's at least more convincing to the brain. Like (laughs) the the emotional impact is more powerful than the billboard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But so uh, what's the deal with Ephraim's natural theology? I mean, I think this is the the less interesting part of what he's trying to say. He's saying like, you can sense God with nature because like every element of nature is in some sense stamped with his seal. An example given in the paper that I thought was funny, uh, Harvey talks about how, Ephraim said, you know, birds have to extend their wings in order to fly. And when they extend their wings, they make the shape of the cross. There you go. There is a lot of Christian theology from the early centuries that reads kind of like this to me. It's like you're kind of reaching, but I admire the effort.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com. Monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
0: But anyway, so Ephraim believes that uh, baptism kind of changes the body, allowing it to acquire new senses that can literally directly sense God and the divine through sights and sounds and tastes and smells. Uh, so to read from Harvey here, quote, in Ephraim's hymns, eating and smelling are closely related experiences. So, too, are the concepts bread of life and fragrance of life. Uh, bread of life is a, is a uh, phrase directly from the Gospels in the New Testament uh, where, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is taken in mass to refer to like uh, the the sharing of communion, the eating of bread at communion. But anyway, uh, Harvey goes on. When eaten as the bread of life, Christ pervades the whole of the believer's being. When inhaled as the fragrance of life, Christ again penetrates throughout the believer. Ephraim titles Christ, quote, the glorious lily. "...the treasure of perfumes, round whom the faithful gather, that they might inhale and be sated, and that the power of Christ's deeds might permeate their senses." And then Harvey goes on with her own writing here, "...through the act of breathing, the life force itself, Christ's presence saturates the believer. Interestingly, it is fragrance rather than breath that Ephraim highlights again and again. His olfactory imagery is about encounter, not animation." The breath of life that Adam received at creation animated his lifeless body. The fragrance of Christ inhaled by the believer indicates by its smell the action of human slash divine encounter through sensory experience. So this probably seems very weird to most people today, even to most Christians today, I would guess. The idea that you could literally sense the resurrection of Christ directly by smelling him. But uh, as weird as that might seem to us today, Harvey again emphasizes that special aromas were uh, a very important part of the rituals of basically every religion in the ancient Mediterranean and in ancient literature, divinity is often described as having a sweet smell. Harvey writes, "...the association was not capricious, immaterial, invisible, yet tangibly experienced. Scent provided a fitting metaphor for divinity that exceeded physicality or comprehension. Scent conveyed essence rather than substance. It could not be contained or circumscribed. It had the power to cross boundaries. The experience of it could not be voluntarily controlled. Scent was affective yet ineffable."
1: Wow, that's, that's neat. This reminds me of uh, the bit we were discussing in the last episode about um, the, the presence of the, the, the imperial Chinese court and then the, yeah, the yeah. presence of the emperor, who, again, has divine connotations, and you can compare that to various traditions of divine kings in cultures around the world, but the idea that this, this would be a presence that had its own unique olfactory reality and that by, by smelling that, you're smelling the divine as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and uh she goes on to include many examples of the way Ephraim uh reimagined like existing pre existing Bible stories as essentially being about smell. Like when Saint Ephraim describes the story of the first Pentecost in the book of Acts, this is a story where uh after the death of Jesus the apostles are said to be they're said to suddenly be filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues to the multitudes. Ephraim, writing about this in a hymn, writes uh, again in translation, quote, When the blessed apostles were gathered together, the place shook, and the scent of paradise, having recognized its home, poured forth its perfumes. So the infilling of the Holy Spirit is like the pouring of a perfume. You can literally smell it. Wow uh, So Harvey summarizes at the end of this section quote, "For Ephraim, olfactory experience mirrors sacramental reality. To smell God is to know God as a transcendent yet transforming experience, a presence actively known through bodily experience." Uh, okay, so so that's section one of this paper, the one that I think actually I found the most interesting. This is about how Ephraim believes smell can literally directly reveal the presence of God. God has a smell, you can smell him, and that's how you know he's there. But it also sort of goes the other way, Harvey, after this, has a section on how Ephraim believed humans can use smells to commune with God, and yet again, this is not uh this is not unique to Ephraim. I mean, this is widespread. We talked about all the examples of humans using various smells to give something to God to give a sacrifice or a gift to God or to communicate with God and here's where there's a little bit of interesting uh tension in the Christian history of the use of smells so Uh, Ephraim was living in the 4th century, in the 300s, and this comes at a turning point for the use of incense in Christian worship. Before this period, Christians mostly avoided the use of incense, uh, setting themselves apart from basically every other religion in the empire. And the early avoidance of incense may in fact have been a kind of intentional segregating maneuver. It's saying like, no, we're different from all these other religions because we don't do that kind of thing. Another problem for the use of incense in Christianity especially in the 3rd century arose because the burnt offering of incense was a uh, was a standard ritual of worship of the Roman gods who the Christians considered the pagan gods and especially of emperor reverence the reverence for the Roman emperor so we've talked about this on the show before there's there's a bit of a misperception that it was like Consistently illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire before Constantine. And that's not true at all. Like, for the most part, Roman authorities really did not care what religion you were, or what God you worshipped. But there were brutal persecutions of Christians in periodic outbreaks in the Roman Empire, not for their positive belief in Christianity, but for their refusal to participate in the imperial cult. So this. Uh, could take the form of a kind of loyalty test. This was especially bad under the Emperor Decius at the beginning of the third century. Uh, so a Roman authority might like grab some Christians and you know bring them in and say, "Okay, we hear you're you're not showing proper fealty to the Roman gods and to the emperor. All we need you to do is do a little burnt offering, burn some incense." For the emperor, for the Roman gods, and then you'll be fine. Sometimes they would do it, which Christians saw when, you know, when some of them did that, they saw that as a big betrayal. Some of them wouldn't do it, and then they might be, they might face really harsh penalties, including being put to death. It's worth noting that Roman pagans viewed the, the, uh, their refusal sometimes to do the offering of incense is really confusing. Like, why not just do it? What's the problem?
1: Yeah, like it's it it might seem a strange hill to in some cases literally die on,
0: but you can certainly see how if Christians in the third century are encountering these situations where like they you know the burning of incense of an incense offering is what the Romans are trying to force you to do or you die, and it is the thing that some of you did in order to avoid death, but in a way that now makes you uh, shamed and excluded from the Christian community, you can understand why they might not think burning incense was cool.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and certainly you can get into you know, various histories of different, like, fringe groups and, uh, and belief systems that, are, that have set themselves outside of uh, the rest of a given culture, and you, you often enforce those barriers by having prohibitions like this in place. Like, we are not going to do the thing that everyone else is doing because mm-hmm. we are set apart.
0: However, it seems like all this changed in the fourth century. Uh, So in the fourth century, for one thing, you get the emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor. And this is a a period of big transition, roughly when Christianity goes from a a sort of reviled uh, large minority religion to suddenly a culturally and politically dominant and in vogue religion. And uh, this is concurrent with what uh, Harvey calls a, quote, broader embellishment of Christian ceremonial. I think this means a sort of inmeshing of Christian belief with the more mainstream aesthetic elements of just religion generally as understood in the Roman Empire. So this is where you, you get the kind of mixing of the superficial trappings of Roman religion with the core theological beliefs of Christianity. Mm. And by the 5th century, the change seems to have been complete, and the use of incense was just normative for pretty much all Christian worship. So Ephraim is writing in the 4th century, when incense usage in Christianity is becoming more popular, and he uses incense imagery a lot— uh, Ephraim is careful to distinguish between uh, incense used in what he calls true religion, which, of course, for him was Christianity and Judaism, and false religion, which for him was everything else. He refers to uh, the incense offerings of pagans, interestingly, as Quote, foul, gloomy in their vapor and loathsome in their odor, and yet, uh, and yet, he says, of course, incense burning is great in what he thought were the true religions, and when incense has a sweet smell, this is because, according to Ephraim, Christ intervenes to make it smell good.
1: That 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 raises questions, but okay.
0: And he repeatedly uses the image of a censer or a thurible, like we were talking about before, as a metaphor for the worship of Christians. Uh, to quote one of his uh, hymns he says come let us make our love a great common censer let us offer up our songs and prayers like incense to the one who made his cross a censer to the divinity and offered his blood on behalf of us all so the censer is doing a lot of work in this kind of imagery uh, so our he's saying our love of the divine is a censer that you know, and and that kind of fits with the church imagery, right? Like that the you might carry a an a sensor that looks like the church you're in, and of course the church is often a metonym for the church community. So it's like the church, in a sense, is a censor, and the smoke coming out of it is the prayers and the faith and all that. Uh, but then he also says that Jesus made his cross a censor. Uh, I think I've lost track of what the image is doing there, but clearly he's really into the idea of, of like, of faith and love as smells.
1: Yeah. So we're, we're knee deep, at least in symbolic religious technology at this point.
0: Right. Now, there's all this stuff about theological tension, about, like, whether the burning of incense should be thought of as, you know, honoring of God or not. Because some Christian theologians would say, wait a minute now, uh, uh, we're not supposed to be sacrificing to God anymore. Christ was the sacrifice, so that's not part of our religion anymore. But uh, I guess they were just overruled because, like, it it became part of what most of the church did. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the last thing in uh, Harvey's paper here is this whole idea of uh, Ephraim and these uh, other theologians talking about smells as having some kind of saving or animating power, like – creating uh, stories in which the, the salvation of Christ is itself an animating smell. So like when the, when a Christian dies, according to these theologians uh, you know, the body dies, but then upon the second coming of Christ, quote, the wondrous odor of that treasury of life flies into the body. So the idea of the resurrection is that life returns because animating smells are, are, are sort of injected into the dead body. By Christ or or by the Holy Spirit. Uh, And this goes along with all kinds of stuff Ephraim writes about how, like, when you go to heaven, you don't actually need to eat bread in heaven. You know, you're not going to be hungry because instead of bread, there is the very fragrance of paradise. You will live on smells alone.
1: I mean, it's enough to make you wonder if he was um, a, a super smeller, if he um, yeah. had just like heightened uh, sense of smell compared to you know, average people. And that, I mean, that alone wouldn't account for all of this, but may- perhaps that sort of uh, played into this just, just hyper obsession with sacred smells.
0: I was wondering about that very thing. Uh, One, this is the very last thing I want to mention from this paper, but I thought this was interesting too. Uh, So Harvey describes Syriac Christian traditions that's, and this is uh, related to Ephraim too, that said that when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden of Eden, you know, the garden of Eden story, Mm -hmm. they eat the fruit. No, they weren't supposed to do that. They get kicked out in these Syrian Christian traditions. They say it was because The serpent had breathed on Adam, and Adam became mortal. And, quote, Eden could not tolerate the stench of mortality. So he, after the serpent breathed on him, he stunk. He stunk of death. So the garden had to vomit him out. And then it was the fragrance of life supplied by Christ that reversed this curse and frightened away death itself. So it's a parallel to the garden. Uh, it said that the grave could not tolerate the smell of life. And thus it spit Christ out and he was was resurrected
1: oh wow you know I can't help but wonder you know Terry Jones of Monty Python was a, a pretty bright fellow and, and very well read especially uh, when it came to, mm-hmm. to medieval topics I wonder if there, any of this played into the bog of eternal stench and labyrinth because mm. this is you know this idea that if Jareth the ruler of the realm were to cast you out you would be cast into the bog of eternal stench and of course if anything in the, in the bog there touches you you will smell bad for the rest of your life uh So I I don't know. I wonder if there's any connection there. Maybe not. Maybe it's but uh, but I wouldn't put it past Terry Jones.
0: That's interesting. I didn't make that connection, but it is interesting how it's reimagining these theological beliefs in terms of uh, you know just understanding our basic physiology. That like smell is clearly a a sense that is very crucial to our disgust reaction, and that like bad smells can easily cause the like the emetic function. You know, the desire to vomit. And uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I also was wondering. I mean, obviously, different types of sensory hallucinations exist, and olfactory hallucinations also exist. Um, but I feel like most of the time when I've read about olfactory hallucinations, they tend to be negative as opposed to positive. They tend to be bad smells. They tend to be situation yeah. where instead of smelling flowers, you smell, um, you know, rot as opposed to the reverse or something, or smelling—it I, I, I I, may be the case that it exists, but I, I don't think I've read anything about uh, hallucinated, pleasant smells. But if such a thing did exist, I guess it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility that you could have positive, olfactory hallucinations induced by religious
0: experience. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
2: in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details.
0: Hyundai, there's
2: joy in every journey.
0: This kind of ties into the next thing I wanted to mention, which is a scientific study about the connection between a commonly used uh, smell in religious rituals, specifically frankincense, and pharmacological effects in the brain. Mm. So this is a study that was published in the FASEB journal in 2008 uh, by Arya Musayef et al. And it's called Incensal Acetate, an Incense Component, Elicits Psychoactivity by Activating TRPV3 Channels in the Brain. Okay, so we know frankincense and other incense uh, you know, aromatic smells have been used in religious rituals going way back. But uh, this is an interesting finding that the smoke of Boswellia resin, again, frankincense, may not only affect us by habit or by learned cognitive association, there may actually be a pharmacological mechanistic effect on the brain as well. Uh, So the authors begin by observing, you know, that people have been burning Boswellia resin, going back to to ancient times for ceremonies of all different sorts, and that the smell is often said to help people feel spiritual exaltation. This study was designed to investigate the neurological and behavioral effects of an organic compound called incensol acetate, which is found in some types of frankincense. Incensol acetate had already been shown at the time of this study to have some anti-inflammatory effects, and the authors here were looking at the effects on the central nervous system. One key discovery seems to be that incensol acetate is a potent agonist or activator for something called the transient receptor potential vanilloid or TRPV3 ion channel. Uh, Now, the TRPV channels are typically used by the skin and other tissues to detect temperature changes and warmth, uh, as well as chemical changes that simulate warmth. One example is that uh, this is a different one, but spicy foods are known to work at least in part by stimulating the TRPV1 channel, uh, which is naturally used to detect burning sensations and pain via heat, via real heat. But you eat some spicy food, the capsaicin in the the hot peppers will activate those TRPV1 channels and create the, the false sensation of burning or heat in the mouth. Meanwhile, the authors of this study point out that the TRPV3 channel, specifically, uh, appears specialized to detect temperatures with a threshold in the range of 31 to 39 degrees Celsius, which is about 88 to 102 degrees Fahrenheit, or roughly the range of human body temperature. And so, generally, when this ion channel is activated, it is experienced by the brain as the feeling of warmth on the skin or in the mouth wherever wherever it's activated. So, these TRPV3 channels are expressed in places like the skin and the mouth, uh, the mouth cavity, of course. But strangely, they are also expressed in the brain tissue itself. And since the body is supposed to always keep the brain at a relatively constant temperature... It doesn't really make sense for the brain tissue to be sensitive to temperature changes. So what is the TRPV3 channel doing in there? What's it why is it in the brain tissue? At the time of this study, the answer to the question was unknown, and I don't know whether there's been much development on that since then, but this study itself might help provide at least one small clue. And it goes like this. So you've got this compound, incensol acetate, found in frankincense. And it is shown in this study to be an agonist or activator for the TRPV3 channel. It's activating these receptors that trigger a feeling of warmth, as well as perhaps having other unknown effects within the brain. Could we look at behavior of uh, animals that are stimulated with this compound in order to see what those effects might be? Well, what do you know? They did that. And yes, there are some effects. In wild-type mice, they found that incense oil acetate was shown to reduce anxiety and depression. Quote, At 50 milligrams per kilogram... IA exerted a potent anxiolytic-like effect, uh, meaning anxiety quelling, causing mice to spend significantly more time in the aversive open arms of an elevated plus maze. Uh, Now, Rob, we've talked about the elevated plus maze test on the show before. That's a test commonly used to try to investigate... um, anxiety or, or the lack thereof in animals where they're placed in a condition where they, you know, they can explore different parts of a, of, of a simple cross-shaped maze. Some parts of that maze are, uh, are covered, they're sheltered. So they, you know, create a feeling of safety or shelter for the animal. Other parts are uncovered. And so generally when an animal spends more time exploring the uncovered parts, they are showing less anxiety. You know, they're less worried about what's going to happen to them and they're more willing to engage in full exploratory behaviors without the without worries about harm uh, and uh, this is used to test various kinds of anxiety uh, drugs that are designed to reduce anxiety but it appears that frankincense also will cause, at least at this dose will cause mice to have less anxiety about these uncovered exposed spaces and they also uh, showed in some different tests that the uh, compound had antidepressant effects on swimming tests in mice and they double-checked this mechanism uh, by trying to re- reproduce these results on mice that had been genetically altered to have their TRPV3 receptors knocked out. And the frankincense compound had no effect on those. So it looks like it is indeed working via TRPV3. Now, the study was in mice, and the same thing might not tr- hold true for humans, or it might not hold true uh, at the doses one would be likely to receive just from being in a room that is uh, you know lightly smoked with frankincense. But it does at least raise this interesting question, is frankincense in particular selected for religious rituals not only because of tradition and the pleasant smell, but because of some kind of possible downstream pharmacological effects associated with activation of the TRPV3 channel? And these these again could include sensations of warmth as well as regulation of emotional states, particularly uh, anxiety and depression. This is fascinating.
1: Uh, so, yeah, I mean, on one level, potentially good news for the church mice in general. Yeah, uh, if nothing else, <laughs> but but yeah, like uh, trying to imagine like how this could feed into ideas and rituals re- revolving around frankincense. I mean, uh, again, obviously, church members at large are not huffing frankincense. Mm. Uh, In in, in their worship. And also we're talking about, we're often talking about rather large spaces with with it just kind of wafting about. But if at some point somebody in a position of sort of spiritual or theological power uh, had been in a more confined space with this and had experienced some of these um, sensations— Whilst uh, you know breathing in uh, some frankincense saturated air, you could see how that might lead into uh, emphases that are placed on on frankincense uh, moving forward.
0: This absolutely got me wondering about formative experience in which I wonder if one Saint Ephraim uh, maybe got into a little hot box room, got very you know a confined space, and went hard on the frankincense, and that did something to him. Yeah. He emerges believing that he can not only metaphorically but literally smell the presence of God.
1: Yeah, this is this is fascinating. I, I guess I'd love to hear from uh, frankincense enthusiasts out there, um, and also I guess in general, it would be interesting to hear from people whose religious practices do have a a dedicated incense or specific odor, like like certainly I can think of like ashram type environments I've been in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know where there is there's incense burned, and uh, i don 't even know what the specific incense would be, but it does contribute to that space but I think back on growing up in a like a Protestant church environment and i don 't I would be hard pressed to say what the smell what the odor of the sacred spaces was you know it was just like mm-hmm. what vacuumed carpet, freshly vacuumed yeah. carpet, maybe <laughs> something like that, something very neutral and almost invisible, air conditioning perhaps or mm-hmm. um, I guess kind of the wood of the pews, that sort of thing, but nothing like that is like literally piped in or literally, you know, burnt and, and created in the space.
0: I feel like I've been in some Protestant churches that almost had new car smell. I don't know how to oh, explain wow. what that is. Hmm.
1: New car smell is interesting to think of in terms of like religious experience, at least within the uh, this sort of pseudo-religious experience in the secular capitalist world of, of yeah. consumerist uh, worship of the automobile. Uh uh-huh. I guess sometimes there is that new church smell. Sometimes uh, you do encounter that, right? Hmm. Where it's just like the new construction smell, new paint, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, one one last thing I wanted to, to touch on here. uh would be remiss if we were talking about um, thuribles and we did not mention the... Uh, uh, the, the Boda Bota Fumario, uh, this is the largest of all thuribles. Uh, it is uh, found in Spain's Santiago de Compostela Cathedral, and this is literally uh, translated. It is the smoke expeller. It is a great, uh, is a huge, uh, eighty kilogram or one hundred and seventy six pound thurible. That stay, if it's if it's standing upright on the ground, it would stand one point uh, six. Uh, meters or five foot two in height, so it's like the size of a person. This mm-hmm. <laughs> is the height of a person, and uh, and therefore it's too large for one individual to swing. No, instead it swings from a pulley system on the ceiling like a great pendulum through, uh, the space here. And you can look up videos of it and it's, it's pretty intimidating. It's this silver finished brass bronze comet burning its way back and forth through the church. You can imagine like if someone were to walk in front of this, (laughs) they would just be completely walloped, um... It's uh yeah it's it's pretty amazing it's I, th- I think the current one only goes back hundred and seventy one years but the use of the pulley system and the use of a large thurible in this church goes back centuries to I think the the fourteen hundreds and the, the, there have been some notable accidents over the years every now and then you know something's going to go awry I think in sixteen twenty two it it allegedly flew out of a window but nobody was hurt.
0: Um, <laughs> This is. I mean, I love this thing, but also I just got sad thinking about how I'm positive that Dan Brown has written a novel in which someone is murdered with this object. <laughs> it just has to be.
1: Yeah, it seems like that would be an irresistible scene for uh, for a novel like that. Like maybe that's how you you do in your villain, or maybe that's the sort of James Bond esque scheme that your villain has to take out uh, your uh, your hero.
0: What would be the plot? It'd be like, oh, no, the Dalai Lama has been crushed to death by a giant thurible, and uh, it's up to our symbologist, who only has 24 hours to catch the killer before the volcano erupts. I I don't know.
1: I guess it would also be irresistible, because I think in Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, somebody ends up hanging from the pendulum or so it's been a very long time since i read that one
0: yeah. uh, so
1: it would make sense given you know all this dan brown stuff since it sort of tends to sort of come in the wake of umberto eco it would make sense yeah. that uh, that it would go in that direction now i actually was researching another angle on uh sensors for incense and uh, it turned out to be a pretty exciting area of religious technology bleeding into uh, the history of uh, of of technology in general so I'm going to set that aside. We'll come back to that. So if you haven't had enough incense yet, don't worry. There's going to essentially be more incense content coming out. But instead of it being incense part three, it's going to be a separate discussion that just involves incense. All right. Now, we didn't touch on anywhere near all the various incense traditions from cultures around the world. There are marvelous examples that I know I was running across from parts of Africa, Meso and South America, the Middle East, and much more. So please write in if there's a specific example you'd like to highlight, something that's part of your practice or culture, because we'd love to hear from you all. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You can find that wherever you get your podcast episodes. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do an Artifact or Monster Fact. And this week's, by the way, in case you missed it, is Incense-themed. So go back and listen to that one if you missed it. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about
0: a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff
3: to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here and it's transparent.